great to have all of you here this morning. So glad you could join us midway through this series on miracles. Our uh, second car, which is a older model, teal-colored Mazda. Yeah, it's teal. It uh, died this week, and uh, for $175, my mechanic pulled off a miracle and brought it back to life. So sometimes you have small miracles, sometimes big miracles. So your football team, I, I cheer for a different football team in the Big Ten. It needs miracles to win. Your team needs no miracles to win. So maybe it does something with my faith. I don't know. Speaking of faith and speaking about God being real, I want to start this morning with that question. How do you know that God is real? When I was 15, 16 years old and my faith was just forming, that was my driving spiritual question. Maybe I'm weak-minded or maybe faith is a hard concept for me to get, but I could not quiet my doubts. And so I kept, in my world, committing my life to Jesus and waiting for a feeling of certainty to sweep over me. It never did. And so I searched for miracles. If I could find a contemporary miracle, something that could not be uh, happen without God, then maybe my doubts could be quieted. And so I searched. But my search backfired. Because when you're searching for a miracle to quiet your doubts, think about it. What do you do? You stretch credibility. And when you stretch credibility, you risk gullibility. And I found myself right back at square one. I wonder if any of you can relate to my journey. But what if the miracle has already happened? What if this miracle, and what if there was a miracle that met standards of proof beyond a reasonable doubt? A miracle so amazing that it does not require, in one sense, risk to believe. It's actually reasonable to believe in it. What would that mean to us? In this series on miracles, we have spent the last two weeks, as we will today, looking at miracles from the eyes of a skeptical, questioning culture. Then next week, we'll take a little bit of a different angle on it. It'll be a more personal angle. It'll be answering the question, what do I do? What do I do when I need a miracle? But for this week, the title of the message is called Dead Men Don't Walk. And we are going to look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, so we don't miss it, how does this relate to our topic? It's very simple. If the resurrection actually happened, if Jesus raised from the dead, then we have evidence that God exists. For what or who else could cause a dead body to come back to life? It is biologically impossible. If Jesus rose from the dead, then miracles are not only possible, but we should expect them. But if he didn't rise from the dead, 
then the Christian faith falls apart. And for us here at Lindenworth, we should just close up shop now. We should take down the sign. We should sell the building to be used for something better. For if what we do here makes you feel good, but if the resurrection's false, then the Christian faith has no connection to anything real. C.S. Lewis, he grasped the essence of other religions unlike any other. He said, in effect, you could take away the few miracles from Buddhism, or you could take away the few miracles from Islam and not affect their central teaching. But the Christian faith is the one religion that you cannot do that. Strip the Christian faith of miracles, and you have nothing left. Why? Because, Lewis says, the Christian faith is the story of one grand miracle. God the uncreated, the eternal, descending into our universe, descending into human nature, becoming a man, setting up camp, pitching his tent in our world, then dying, then rising again. If you take away that, Lewis concludes, you have nothing. Now the Apostle Paul believed this, and he put it the same way, put it in a little different way. Here's how he said it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Paul wrote this, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And then skip down to verse 20 at the end of this little section. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Very simple logic. To answer the question that some were raising that there was no resurrection, Paul said, if Christ raised, then there is a resurrection, and therefore all will rise at the end of their lives. Well, that was 2,000 years ago, right? Is it still reasonable today to believe in the resurrection? That's the question we're after. It ought to matter to us. It impacts lots of things. For example, what do you tell a person who is dying? I mean, what do you tell? Do you tell them a few warm fuzzies, a few hopeful, wishful sentiments? That maybe I'll see you again in the future? Or, yeah, sure, you'll go to heaven without really knowing what you're saying or why you're saying it? What do you tell a person? You know, most of us will face that in our lives. What do you tell a family member, a friend who's dying? Do you honestly expect a reconnection with loved ones who have passed? Really? Do you believe that? Or is that just a nice wish? For those of you that are already Christians, is your faith reasonable? What I mean is, can you explain your faith to someone else? Can you explain to someone else what it is you believe and why you believe it? If you can't, that's a good reason to listen. Focus this morning. So, these are all important things, and they revolve around this question. 
Is it reasonable to believe in the resurrection? So here's your outline. In order to answer that question, we're going to ask three follow-up questions. Number one, how do we know anything from the past? Number two, on what basis did Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, believe in the resurrection? And thirdly, on what basis does Paul ask us to believe? Okay? Let's take a moment, bow our heads, and close our eyes, and talk to God. Invite Him to uh, impart His presence and His power this morning to us. Father, thank You this morning. We believe that You're here. We believe that You're with us. We believe that You want to impart life and meaning and purpose to us. I pray that we would focus and listen to Your words. And I pray that You would both illumine and inspire us and bring us to a place of a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what His words mean to us. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's tackle this first question. How do we know anything from the past? You know, if you were asked a question, how do you know Jesus really existed? Do you know how you would answer that question? If that question was asked to me, here's how I would reply. I would say back to that person, how do you know that Julius Caesar existed? And that person may respond back, well, that's very easy. We know that Julius Caesar existed. We read all about him in history books. And I would say the exact same thing about Christ. We learn about Christ in the same way through history. We have to be careful not to get hung up to think that we can only learn about Christ through some spiritual or through some abstract, vague truth. We learn about Him historically in the same way as we learn about others. We learn about Him through the account of eyewitnesses. And then we gather evidence from archaeology, our evidence from related documents that support the testimony of those eyewitnesses. That's how people learn about the past. Historians find eyewitnesses who are there at the right place and are at the right time, pay special attention to the testimony of enemies or those whose minds have been changed or those who have a good reason to be skeptical. Now, as this all relates to Jesus, we might begin with what someone called minimal facts. I'll explain this. But minimal facts was a theory put forth by a professor named Gary Habermas. Uh, he is a professor of religion, a professor of history. He is an expert on this topic of the resurrection. Now, I'd like to tell just a brief story about him. If you will let me digress for a moment from this message, it does connect to our series. Very interesting story. Gary Habermas once debated the famous, though now deceased, ex-atheist named Anthony Flew. I'm going to suppose most of you have not heard of him. He was a British, very famous British philosopher, very famous atheist. You might see, let's see that first image actually 
uh, Noel, and you'll see he wrote this book, many books, called, this one's called Atheistic Humanism. After the debate, Flew began to have a, a change of mind. The debate, by the way, there was an impartial panel of judges, and they, four out of five, agreed that Habermas had won this debate. But Habermas, our, our flu, was looking at the same evidence that we were looking at last week, the fine-tuning of the universe, the incredible complexity in our universe. And he was beginning to change his mind. Now keep in mind, this is a man who was in his, who was in his ninth decade of living. This is a man who, when he was younger, had actually debated against C.S. Lewis. After a long time of thinking and reasoning, he abandoned his lifelong commitment to atheism based on what he was learning. And he wrote this famous book. It, if you can't read it, it reads, There is no God, the Noah's crossed off and is replaced with there is a God. And the subtitle is How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, fellow atheists were incensed at his change of heart, to which Flew reproached them for not being willing to take the evidence and follow the evidence where it leads. Now, he died only a couple years after that debate. We don't know if he became a Christian. There's no record of him becoming a Christian. However, it was reported that close to the end of his life, he was reading and enjoying the writings of N.T. Wright, a very famous British Anglican theologian. So, I digress, me end that. Back to this idea, let me explain what Habermas means by minimal facts. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, what do those who study the New Testament really believe about Jesus? And he says, and he, he calls it a minimal fact or bare facts because what he does is he takes a look at and studies the consensus, the collective testimony of all of the people who are given to studying who Jesus is and what the New Testament says. Now, there's a lot of flyby nights. There's a lot of people who take pot shots who don't really do the historical research. And he is saying, what is the consensus of this group? And this group includes many skeptics. It includes New Testament scholars that are atheists. And he says, what are the what is widely believed? What can we call historical fact from what these from the collective testimony of these individuals? It's an interesting list. Here are the historical facts from these scholars. Number one, that Jesus lived. Number two, that Jesus was a miracle worker. Number three, that the disciples saw what they believed to be Jesus risen from the dead. Number four that the disciples were turned from doubters to believers. Number five, that the resurrection was their central message. Number six, that they preached the message in Jerusalem right in the heart of their most fierce opposition. And number seven, that despite that, the church grew very rapidly. Now those are widespread, held beliefs. We can call them historical facts. Now, just to make sure I clarify so it's clear to you, these skeptical scholars who do not accept the supernatural, they're not conceding that Jesus 
physically rose from the dead. All they're saying is, there is so much evidence in the aftermath that they had to see something. They had to see something. And in their minds, they at least can see that the disciples believed that it was Jesus risen from the dead. But all that to say, we've answered our first question. How do we know anything from the past? It's through historical research. We learn about Jesus in the same way. Let's go to the second question. On what basis did Paul himself believe? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. We're going to back up on this passage that we've been looking at. Starting in verse 1. Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then. You still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you. If you continue to believe the message I told you, Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. There's something very essential here that it's easy for us to miss. Paul was delivering something to the Corinthians that had been passed on to him. Paul is not asserting this based on his own authority. Rather, he is appealing to an already established tradition or a set of beliefs that had come together in the early church very Quickly, within only a few years after the life of Christ. This is what's called the good news, the gospel. It's of primary importance. And it is a simple confession of belief about the person of Jesus. He died, he's buried, and he's raised again. Now, remember, historians want to find the right eyewitnesses with access to the real story. This is exactly what Paul does. And we have a little sense of this, and we have a sense of where this passing on may have taken place back in the book of Galatians. Turn there with me if you would. It is page 972, and I'm going to give you a little background before I read the scriptures uh, related here. You have to have a little background to appreciate what Paul is writing Paul was raised as an incredibly strict, fastidious Jew. Uh, He was convinced that Jesus' followers were undermining the Mosaic law. And so Paul set out on this murderous, treacherous quest to destroy and to stamp out the Christian faith. Literally, the word says, breathing out murderous threats. He was separating families and murdering people and throwing believers into jail and doing it he thought to please God one day he was en route to Damascus to round up more believers modern day Syria and he had a direct miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus Paul had a vision of Jesus 
Jesus made himself vividly clear to Paul. He spoke to him. He called him to be his ambassador. He called him to suffer for him. And then you see, and this is, if you look at verse 16, this is what Paul mentions here. That God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. And then in verse 17, he talks about the first thing that I did was I withdrew for three years to Arabia. And only after that interim then does he go to Jerusalem to see the apostles. Let's read here verse 18 and 19. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. Now, just focus on this verse for a moment. I want you to see the part that says, I stayed with him for 15 days. Or another version says, I I got to know you. This phrase is actually, uh, the translation comes from one Greek word. And that Greek word is hystereo. And as you might guess, that is where we get the word history from. The word means to inquire into, to examine, to investigate, to get to know by visiting. So this is much more than just a nice little collegial visit. Paul is going right to the source to test and confirm his understanding about Jesus. And look at the two individuals that he talks with. Peter is a very significant witness, not only because he had access to the story, but because Peter, who vehemently denied Jesus, turned out to be one of the most courageous communicators, unreserved, sharing courageously with thousands that Jesus had risen from the dead. Historians have to find some way to account for that change. The second witness is very, also very intriguing. That was James. You might remember James was the Lord's brother. And remember our studies back in John? Remember how skeptical he was? How critical he was of his brother? And yet here we find him as a leader of the church. What happened? Something has to account for that transformation. Paul is going right to the source. Chapter 2 in Galatians, and if you look down at verse uh, 2, at the end of the verse, it says that Paul was very concerned that he was not running or had not run in vain. What's going on here is that sometime later, because it was a different meeting that took place, Paul again took this gospel he was preaching and he went and submitted it back to the apostles. He'd already been doing it for quite some time. This may be the meeting in Acts chapter 15. But the point is is that Paul is very concerned with making sure his message is aligned with the apostles because the apostles, remember the requirement to be an apostle? Had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Had to have been with Jesus during his ministry. Right witness, right place, access to the story. Paul was concerned that his message line up with theirs. Again, inferring, meaning, implying, there was already a tradition, a creed, a set of beliefs that had grown up, including the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul wanted to make sure that his message was the exact same. So this is Paul passing on, delivering to others. And on what basis does Paul believe? Back to our second question. 
It's not only the direct encounter that he had, that that was significant, but he had the confirming testimony of properly placed eyewitnesses. Okay, let's go to our final question. So, then, on what basis does Paul ask us to believe? Look down at verse 7, verse 6 or 7 there, back in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he writes. After that, Jesus was seen by more than 500 of his followers, and Paul wants to underscore at one time, most of whom are still alive. He also underscores that, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Why does he mention 500 and why is that significant? Again, let's go back to this Habermas's minimal facts theory. Part of the collective testimony, part of the widely held beliefs amongst New Testament scholars, including skeptics, is that 1 Corinthians is a genuine, authentic book. And so here you have in a genuinely authentic book, the writer of it saying that Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses at once. Here's why that's a problem for those who assume that resurrection is impossible. The prevailing theory up to recently on what the disciples saw, since we can't discount that disciples saw something because of the incredible changes, since we can't discount that, the prevailing theory is that they had an hallucination, that there was some mind trick that tricked them to believing that Christ had risen from the dead. Of course, the problem with this is that, this, and the reason why this view has now fallen uh, out of favor, uh, rarely anyone, anyone holds this, is because of 500 people witnessing Jesus at the same time. It's improbable, if not impossible, that 500 people, that would be twice the size of this room, could have be candidates for the same kind of mind trick or the same kind of deception that a hallucination would assume. It's virtually impossible. Further, hallucinations do not solve the empty tomb, nor do they fully account for the disciples' radical transformation. How could they respond so differently to this hallucination? So if these theories of hallucination don't hold much weight today, then what do skeptical scholars point to today? What do they think the disciples saw? Well, frankly, they are not sure. They simply aren't sure. They believe that Jesus may have appeared in some sort of ghost-like, non-physical way. And therefore, you'll hear things like, Jesus lives on through His teaching. Or, Jesus' Spirit is with us. Um, In the same vein of when someone you love passes away and you say, Uncle John or Aunt Betty, their spirit is still with me today. That's what they mean when they say something like that. But again, where does the evidence lead from those who were the eyewitnesses at the right place, at the right time, skeptics alike? What is their testimony? Over and over again, Jesus says, 
eaten with His disciples. He prepares a meal for them. He is different but the same. They have touched His side and His feet. Mary clings to His body. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about our physical bodies being transformed into a spiritual body. From those that were there, the evidence is is that this was a concrete, physical, bodily resurrection. One foot in heaven and one foot in the world. Uniting spirit and nature. A physical, resurrected, bodily Jesus. That's what the simple evidence says if we have no presupposition that dead men can't rise from the dead. I'm going to just look quickly, if you want to look at this first John. This was what John said. He was one of those eyewitnesses. First John 1.1 1, 1. He says, that which we have was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. This life was made manifest. We see it. We testify it. We proclaim to you this eternal life. So, on what basis does Paul ask you to believe? We find it's not an appeal based on emotion. We find it's not an appeal based on wish fulfillment. It's not an appeal based on sentimental or trite or warm fuzzies. Paul has done the work of a good historian. A man interested in knowing why he believes what he believes. Listen, think about Paul. Before Christ, he was an enemy a persecutor of the church. This is why he's such a significant witness. He is passionate for its destruction. Can you imagine the intellectual, moral, and emotional bias that Paul had for this message not to be true? For if it was true, what did he have to face? If it was true, he had to face what he had done. He has an intellectual, an emotional, a moral basis not biased not to believe in Jesus. And yet, historians scratch their heads. How can we account for his amazing, unbelievable transformation? What had been given to him in the tradition of Jesus, he passes on. And he asks you to believe. Paul asks you to believe because the life of Jesus was real and his life and message were proven by the resurrection. And so I circle back to my original question. And I believe the evidence does point to that this miracle of the resurrection makes it very reasonable and very rational to believe and accept. It meets the standards of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And because of it, miracles are not only possible, but we should expect them. Because God seeks to communicate who He is to us. Now, just a remaining few minutes. Let me give you two simple applications. Number one, number one, you will face a death in your family at some time. And you'll be the one sitting by the bedside of that loved one. And you'll be into that journey of darkness and mystery when death is imminent. And I actually enjoyed reading the sermon of a pastor who 
was giving an Easter message on a Sunday following his father's death on Monday, the Monday previous. And he was thinking about what he could have said or what he would have said based on his beliefs. And, you know, he reasoned that if we were secularist, if we were atheist, if we had no real conviction of a God, we would have no real hope. We are just an episode between two oblivions. I would probably tell my dad, hey, let's explore every medical procedure to extend your life, for it's all there is. And then what he would say, and then, and then my last words to my dad might have been, my last words may have been, well, dad, death wins. Dad, you might as well order some hard liquor from the nurse. That's what Paul essentially explains. You may as well party like there's no tomorrow, for there is no tomorrow. You might just as well gorge yourself on Paula Dean butter bacon burgers. That's... Those are his words, not mine. I've never had one of those. But you, you may as well go for one long binge, for that's all there is. Will you be prepared on that day to know what you believe and why you believe when you're called upon? Will you give comfort just because it's kind of the cool thing to do or you feel like you ought to give some comfort, but you're not really sure what you believe or why you believe it? And say so you, you say a few nice warm fuzzies. You promise a resurrection you know nothing about you promise a reuniting that you know nothing about that you don't really not sure if you believe it or not but sounds good or will you be able to have reasons to explain why the hope is way beyond just wish fulfillment or a nice sentimental thing to say here's a second application you see because jesus rose from the dead jesus christ has authority to give life. When you're given a job or a title at work or uh, coaching or teaching or the things that you do, when you're given an authority, you're able to tell people what to do. That's kind of cool. Within the realm of your authority, you, know, you sort of boss people around, you, you know, move them here, move them there to get a certain job done. You operate in that realm of authority because Jesus rose from the dead. He has authority to give life. He has authority in the realm of of life and death. He came preaching the good news. He came preaching the kingdom of God. You see, the Christian faith distinguishes itself from every other religion in this way. It answers this question, how can a person become right with God? While other, every other religion employs some version of human merit, or some basis of moral purity, the Christian faith rises and falls on the idea of grace. God coming to you. God coming to you. The story of the Christian faith is not a moral story. It's not about how pretty good people get their houses in order. There's no such thing as a moderate salvation story. The Christian faith is a story of rescue. And who needs saving? Every single one of us. When the Bible discusses how we need saving, it uses the language of sin to describe the way we are and the way that we're not who we were created to be. At the core of pain and suffering, 
abuse and neglect of all sorts, at the heart of evil, wherever it is experienced, is sin. The Bible describes it as the twisting and the distorting of the world into crookedness. Humanity experiences it daily in the tendency to do what we do not want to do and the frustration that we cannot do what we ought. Sin is present at the wounding of others and the way we have been wounded too. If we were left alone by God, sin would continue to spiral downward into greater suffering until the end of the world. If left alone, there would be no hope for the end of pain and evil. But here comes Christ proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming the rule and the reign of God in our world, proclaiming the invasion of God. And the very symbol at the core is the cross. The cross is where Jesus saved us. The cross is where our inability to save ourselves and God's love for us meet face to face. In the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in His resurrection, sin was dealt a death blow. The story of Christianity is a story of God pushing back against the effects of sin in our world, including your own heart. In the story of God, like a king, He is impressing His rule on a broken and suffering world. The church, we are to announce the good news of the kingdom and to participate in its healing and restoring work. When a person believes in Christ, it's what I'm asking you to do today, what Paul was asking you. When a person believes in Christ, they place their trust in Him. That trust is not always perfect. The cost the Christian pays is that we must own up to the fact that we cannot save ourselves and that we cannot live right lives without dependence on Jesus to make Christians out of us. So the same way you come to Jesus is the same way you live as a Christian by needing Him every day. This is what Christians call repentance. There are no pedestals to stand on in Christianity. The Christian never graduates from a basic childlike dependence on Jesus. The sign, the evidence, the proof that we have trusted in Jesus is not the complete elimination of sin. But while we are still struggling with sin, fruit, fruit inside of us begins to be born and we begin to experience a new kind of life. Love for our neighbors and even our enemies. Joy and peace, patience and kindness, compassion and mercy for others. Whatever greater morality a Christian realizes as they follow Jesus is experienced in greater humanity and greater service towards others and most of all, greater worship and gratitude towards the one who saves them. The person who has been given grace by Jesus worships Jesus. And then after believing, and I trust some of you will believe this morning, the most important thing you can do to grow in your life as a Christian is to join a local Bible-believing church and to worship 
and be in community with other Christians. A church where God's Word is central and is communicated. A church that is given to uh, the remembrances and the grace of God, given through communion, given through baptism, given through community. And there, Christians are nourished in their faith and they have the grace that makes them right with God. Is the same grace that helps Christians to grow up into Him. In just a moment, we are going to experience a couple of baptisms. And this is the first thing that you do when you believe in Christ. The first thing you can do to evidence that faith, to tell others, is to be baptized as a way of saying, I now belong to Christ. He has saved me. I make a pledge to follow Him. This is the ritual or the rite of the church, so to speak, that gives evidence to what God has done inside of us. We'll enjoy that here in just a few moments. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for our few moments here together this morning. And indeed, as we have prayed, your presence has been here. And I trust you, Father, to work with every heart in this room. Wherever they are, whether they're investigating the Christian faith or whether they have been at it for a long time, that you will help them take the next step towards you. The next step towards experiencing your grace and living for you. The next step in renouncing sin. The next step of repentance and embracing you with a deeper oneness and union. Father, thank you that you've been here. Continue to lead us now through Christ, we pray. Amen.